Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at ClearMe.com slash Ion Travel and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the Renaissance Esmeralda Resort and Spa in Indian Wells, California. Everybody knows who listens to this show that I'm an aviation geek. I go out of control. Uh, I try to fly every simulator I can. And, uh, well, and my, all I can tell you is I can't wait to talk to him. He's the uh, managing director at the Palm Springs Air Museum. Fred Bell, how are you, sir? Good. How are you? I'm good. I mean, everywhere I go, I want to I check that out. And, and I didn't know. I mean, I know about all the other museums out there, but I'm not, I mean, I've seen them up in, in, in Santa Paula and everywhere, else, but Palm Springs. Yeah, Palm Springs uh, Museum, about 22 years old. Was started, so relatively young. Relatively young. Started by a guy, named, guy by the name of Bob Pond. And he was a World War II naval aviator, and he was really focused on World War II. Uh, he's passed away about... 11, 12 years ago, and we have kind of grown into where the collection starts about pre-1930 and goes up until current day. 
And the the I mean, amazingly enough, you've been voted like one of the top four air museums in the world. Yeah, uh, uh, CNN <laughs> voted us. What do they know? Yeah, what do they know? They uh, one of the top fourteen in the world, and we were one of the top five in the U.S. that they recognized. And we were the smallest. We're an independent. Uh, we're not a government-run facility. You're not federal. You're not military. No. And yet you've got, what, 59 flyable? Six, 61 now. It's 61 flyable planes? Uh, not flyable. About um, 30 of them are flyable. That's not bad. And yeah. do you fly them? It's about seven a year. The cost of uh, flying uh, vintage airplanes is not insignificant. And one of them is a B-17. B-17. And that was one of them you fly. Airworthy, yes. Wow, that takes a lot of maintenance. Anything of that ilk, yeah, 75-year-old airplane, is it's a little bit of work. Now, one of the ones that you have, which I know, I grew up with it, um, and my grandfather, believe it or not, helped build it, the C-47, the military version of the DC-3. Correct. And uh, one of the seven weapons that won the war, according to Eisenhower, if you believe it or not, was a C-47. And those is- planes are still flying today all over the country. Oh, yeah, about 400 400 still, in the yeah. world are running around. Ours is painted in uh, livery of What's Up Doc, which is uh, an airplane that flew in D-Day, flew Market Garden, which was a bridge too far. Yeah. Flew the Berlin Airlift across the Rhine. And when, when you say it flew the Berlin Airlift, that means that plane was in the air almost all the time. Because, because it was shuttling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? Right. And by the end of the war, they were C-47s are actually being phased out. They were bringing other aircraft, but they are using everything they had because— uh, they couldn't feed the Germans. They, the, they were blockaded by the Russians at that point, and they were starving. Uh, you've also got a T-33, which actually I've flown. Really? Yeah. Very cool. I, I did a movie years ago that I produced based on a story that I'd done for Newsweek, so I had to get qualified in the centrifuge mm-hmm. to be able to get up there. Uh, I had to go down to uh, an Air Force base in Texas, and uh, I think it was Kelly Air Force Base. Yeah, and, Kelly, San and, Antonio. Yeah. Yep. And they put me in the centrifuge, and... Uh, you had to, to pull at least nine Gs in that centrifuge before they qualify you. And I pulled 10.5. And you stayed awake. Barely. <laughs> I, I, it's not a question of staying awake. It's a question of being able to open your eyes. Absolutely. Or even lift your finger. Yes. Uh, it's unbelievable. And so I qualified. So I went out to Nellis Air Force Base, and we did a movie called Red Flag. Yeah. And that when my pilot was Chuck Yeager. Wow. Yep. And I went, through a, I went to flying with a, with a two-star. Um, and we got permission for a vertical takeoff on an F-15. That changed my life. Oh, yeah. Well, you light the uh, fires uh, uh, on that. You I mean, light the fire. A vertical takeoff, meaning that the minute the wheels clear the ground and you're only about 20 feet up, you go straight up. I mean, yeah. it's it's an eye. Yeah. And, uh, oh, my God, unbelievable. That is amazing. So, but the T-33, of course, the F-5, the yes. F-4, the F-15, the 16. Yes. I got a chance to do even the A-10. Oh, really? The tank killer. Yeah. Uh, the C-130, the B-52. They all participate in red flags, so right. I had to fly them all. That is very and cool. And it was just amazing. Very cool. But then you have another plane that I used to, to talk about with a guy named Bob Hoover. Okay. Legendary pilot. New Bob, yeah. Yep. The P-51 Mustang. P-51. The, that was the fastest propeller plane, I think, that ever flew. It was uh, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, pretty close. The, we have a P-51D, which is in uh, Tuskegee colors, and it's uh, in the colors of uh, Colonel Bob Friend. He was the uh, combat operations officer for the Tuskegees in Italy. And he's a great guy. Just We lost him in June. The guy that I knew who also has, has passed was Chappie James. Okay. And Chappie James, was, uh, he was a decorated pilot. 
in the Korean War in Vietnam, ended up becoming the Deputy Secretary of Defense, then ran NORAD, yeah. and then was down in Pensacola uh, running all the, the, the Navy stuff down there uh, when I got a chance to, to go down and play with him, too. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable stories about the guys who took those planes up. Oh, yeah. None of the avionics were on board that are on today. They had no GPS. They didn't. No. They didn't know exactly. They had a compass that may or may not have worked, and an, and a, and an old artificial horizon. Yeah. And you know the the opportunities of getting spatially disoriented were numerous. Mm-hmm. But they made it. Well, you think about going into Germany, uh, either from Italy or England. They're going a couple thousand miles. And that's all done uh, the old with uh, maps and slide rolls and all the other stuff. It's all done. Yeah, paper charts. Yeah, very very scary stuff. Of all the planes you've got there, of all the stories that you tell, what's the one that's the most surprising for you? Uh, probably the it would go to the P fifty one. It would be with uh, Bob Friend and. He uh, flew And by the way, for anybody who wants to, every year they have the Reno Air Races, mm-hmm. which they're flying around pylons you can't believe, and there are P-51s up there. Yeah, we have a P-51 up there, a P-51 and a P-63 that fly at Reno. Yeah, you got to see that. I mean, it's amazing. They, it's, you you want to see speed at low altitude, yeah. check it out. Yeah. Right? Yes. But you love that P-51. The, I love the P-51, and we restored it about five years ago, and Bob actually came down and we restored it, and he gave us all the little tips from when he flew the airplane. So all the little details on the airplane are right. It's not us like restoring it from a picture or whatever. He would come in and go, this needs to be white or this needs to be, it was really a great guy. He was specific. He was. And his, his best story was um, he was flying at night in a P-51 and he got lost and the door on the radiator froze. And so the engine got colder and colder. He was flying in sleet and he eventually had to roll the airplane over at night and bail out. This is over Italy. So he comes down. He had a bell because he just couldn't handle the, it. The engine quit. It just got oh, really? so cold, the engine quit. So he lands on the ground, and there's a house there. And, and is that how you bailed out of that plane? You had to you just get, roll it over and pop, drop out and fall out. See, that's not the way I trained. <laughs> I trained you had to pull the, you had to pull, you pull the, the handle. handles and just shoot you, you shoot out up, of the airplane. Yeah. So he lands on the ground. The lights go on, and out comes this Italian woman. He doesn't speak Italian. She's screaming at him in Italian. She's got a huge knife. And she comes running at him, and he gets his revolver out, and he's like, oh, my word, I'm going to have to shoot this woman. She runs right by him, grabs his parachute, cuts the shears, and takes a parachute, goes in the house, and the light goes off. She was completely after the silk in his parachute. She had no interest in him whatsoever. <laughs> story of my life. A, yeah, there you go. But he is a great story, and, and uh, you know, you think about how, what those guys had to do. It's just crazy. We're talking with Fred Bell from the uh, Palm Springs Air Museum. You're open all year round? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're only closed on uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, 10 right. to 5. You even have an F-18. We have an F-18. We're getting a stealth fighter here in but you uh, can't see it. four months. <laughs> yeah, it's there now. You don't know. I mentioned we're coming to you from Indian Wells, California. I would, gr- I would gather that unless you live in Southern California, an overwhelming number of you have no idea where that is. It's not far from Palm Desert, not far from Palm Springs. As you can imagine now, we are in Southern California, in the desert. And joining me now is somebody who knows a whole lot about that. He's the mayor of Indian Wells. Ty Peabody, how are you, sir? Good morning. You know, if you take a look at the total population of Indian Wells, everybody knows everybody. It's like 5,000 people. Yeah, that's during the, during the summer and about 10,000 in the winter. All right, but still, 15,000 is still small. 
It is. It is. Now, you cut, you've been mayor for what, eight years now. Well, I've, I've been on the city council for eight years. This is my second term as mayor. And the thing is, if you take a look at your history, I mean, you didn't start as a politician. And we're talking federated department stores and Swenson's ice cream and, right? Yeah, all retail and hospitality, yeah. And then you segue to this. Yeah, this was this was a challenge. I just decided after I watched some of the things going on that we needed a change. We needed more business experience, better financial um, implementation. Now, the name Indian Wells. Where does it come from? It's a it's a name. It, the there was a well here called the Indian mm-hmm. Wells. It's uh, actually located up on Highway 111. This used to be a stagecoach area where the the stagecoach would come through the city, and there were both stops in both here and Palm Desert. Right, and the traffic was a little less than the 405. Definitely. <laughs> and the 10. No doubt about it. Exactly. And the thing is, the community, when you look at the history of it, because when I was a correspondent for Newsweek in the 70s, I was down here all the time because of Palm Desert, Indian Wells, Frank Sinatra, Walter Annenberg, I mean, you know, Gene Autry, they were all here. Yeah, it's it's changed a lot, but... That's a great history for this area, no doubt about it. I mean, what makes this place so historic? Well, I think I think Indian Wells itself has has gone through a metamorphosis uh, with the tennis garden that's here now, where the PNB is played. It's the draws about five hundred thousand people here every year. This is also the Bob Hope Golf Classic. The Bob Hope Golf Classic now American Express has taken that over. Right, and all the stars would come down here on the weekends. No doubt about it. Everybody was here. And uh, I can remember when my dad played with Bob Hope in the Bob Hope Open. Really? Yeah. No. How, how'd he do? Not very well. He got, <laughs> he got nervous. <laughs> well, the thing that always drove me nuts was, was the Walter Annenberg story, because Walter Annenberg, for people who don't know, was, was a legendary publisher, a publisher of a magazine that used to make millions of dollars and now is basically struggling, called TV Guide. Uh, and he really wanted to come down here and play golf. And Joined, wanted to join a country club for a membership, and for whatever reason, they didn't want him to join. And so what he did was, with his money, he bought all the land around the golf club, built his own golf course, and took all their water. <laughs> yeah, and it's, a, it's, it's an incredible destination that everybody should visit. It is, there's a lot of history. The Annenbergs were heavily involved in the politics, and it's just a wonderful place to see, and they've kept... All of the history, all of the furniture, everything is the same. Even when Obama came, he had to sleep in a bed that was about 60 years old. And it's beautiful. It has its own golf course. It's a nine-hole golf course with the ability to play 18. They move the tees around. And, of course, Bob Hope's house is still here. Yes, it is. And that was a huge house. Yeah, it's up on the, up on the hill. Up on the hills in Palm Springs. It's been bought by the uh, owner of Ralph's, actually. <laughs> the grocery store guys. Exactly. And then Sinatra's house. Yeah, I, I don't, I've never been to Sinatra's house, so I can't really speak to that. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a great story about Sinatra that when he was down here, of course, he was very much involved with the Kennedys in supporting uh, John Kennedy's uh, campaign in, the 19, in 1960. And when Kennedy became president, uh, he was going to come visit Sinatra here in, in, at his house. And so Sinatra had the entire house redone according to Secret Service standards with a helipad and all sorts of electronics and surveillance and security. And then at the last minute, uh, Robert Kennedy was, was pressured heavily by J. Edgar Hoover that the Sinatra so-called uh, you know, link to the mob made him a, a persona non grata. That's true. And so he, he was told he couldn't come. 
Sinatra never really forgave Bobby for that. And that really was his conversion to the Republican Party. And ironically, when Kennedy was, was inaugurated president, Sinatra produced the inaugural balls. When Ronald Reagan was inaugurated president, Sinatra produced the inaugural <laughs> balls. And Reagan was down here all the time. Yes, he was. Yeah. No. I mean, Gerald Ford, the whole Betty Ford Center. Yeah, they, a lot of them stayed at the Annenberg. Um, as I say, it's an incredible spread. It's, probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 acres maybe and just absolutely beautiful. And this neighborhood, this region, was always sort of exclusive, right? It was never, it wasn't, you know, not a lot of high-rises, not a lot of, um, I mean, this is a, is a big building with 500 rooms plus, right? The Esmeralda Resort. Yes, yeah. But that's only in recent years. This, this city has got the highest probably net worth. It has five of the wealthiest people in the world living here in season. Um, only in season, by the way. Only in season. Uh, <laughs> And it's a, it's a very wealthy community, and it's a, but it's also a philanthropic community. They do a lot for the Eisenhower facilities. They do a lot of wonderful charity work. I always had a, an affection, as you know when you listen to the show, I'm, I'm an airline and airport geek, and of course every airport was another opportunity for me to learn more and see more, and I'll always remember my very first visit to the Palm Springs Airport, and it was called, the, it was before even it was called the Palm Springs International Airport, it was the Palm Springs Airport, and what did I notice about it? You didn't have to look far. Inside the airport was a golf course. It was a little three-hole or a one-hole golf course. I said, this is cool, and uh, I've always remembered that. Most of my friends didn't fly to Palm Springs. They drove. Most of my friends didn't fly to Palm Springs because in those days, there wasn't a lot of air service, unless your name was Sky King, for those people old enough to remember that show on television. And uh, things have changed. So I thought it would be a great idea to get on the show the executive director of the Palm Springs, quote-unquote, International Airport. We will talk about that. Tom Nolan, how are you, sir? Very good, sir. Thank you. Do you still have the golf course? Uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We had to put in new concessions like wine bars outside and Starbucks. People lay on the grass. They're not interested in putting anymore. They want to relax. But I thought that putting was relaxing. No? Well, do you, you want to know the real story? Yeah, I do. The whole idea the golf club could have been a, a potential weapon. Thanks to 9-11. That Thanks was it? To that was, that was part you of couldn't the bring the club, clubs yeah, in? Yeah. Okay. But other than that, you have expanded. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was there, literally, um, if you were in the wintertime, American Airlines had like a 727 or maybe even a, an MD-80 that would come in from either Dallas or Chicago in, in the winter. Those that, are the old days. Yeah. And now? You're going for a tour in an hour or so. You're, it's going <laughs> to blow your mind. No airport like it in the world. Uh, most of the gate hold space, you'll sit outside at a wine bar, get a beautiful glimpse of the mountains, the sun ba basting your skin. It is just absolutely gorgeous. 16 gates, 2.6 million passengers, 10 airlines, over 20 destinations. 
everything from a 767 down to the uh, most modern regional jet. Who's flying a 767 upon Well, Air Canada did, and uh, they've since changed. But 10,000-foot runway, uh, we, we if you want to fly here, you can get here from anywhere in the world. Well, you need a 10,000-foot runway, especially with the heat, to get the lift. You got it. Yeah, density altitude. Exactly. Yeah. All right, but you had a 767. And plus, Air Force One used to come in. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So you've landed some big planes. Many presidents. Oh, absolutely. And it isn't just about big planes. You're a frequent flyer. It's about getting to a destination. And you can get here from anywhere in the world. Are you still mostly a seasonal airport? Well, not necessarily. We do hundreds of thousands of passengers during the summer. I'm born and raised in the Midwest. If you want to get away... Well, yeah, let's yeah. be honest. Okay. You, yeah. you, you came from an airport that's one of my other favorite airports, Mitchell Field in Milwaukee. That's right. Really? Oh, you bet. And you know why... Look, I mentioned the golf course in, 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 in at your place. Yeah. What you had at Mitchell, I, ho- I still hope they're still there, is Renaissance Bookstore. They, they, it is. It's still there. It is. A, a, a rare and used bookstore in the middle of an airport. I used to schedule, I still do, I haven't done it this year yet, but I used to schedule three-hour layovers in Milwaukee just so I could go shopping at that bookstore. Unbelievable. It's true. And the cool thing about that bookstore, uh, by the way, they're an independent bookstore. We need to support independent bookstores. But the cool thing about that bookstore is I'd go in there and I'd buy so much stuff because they had all the old books on airlines and airports and history. And, and then i just tell them to ship it to me it's like $10, and you didn't pay any tax because it was shipping out of state. It was the best. Still is. Wow. And they, st- and they still have Billy Mitchell's plane on the front. They do? Yeah. Is that great? Huh? I know. It is that great. Wow. But I go back to the days of North Central. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Right. North, when they used to fly the Convair 580s in there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then, of course, after that, it was Midwest Express with their small DC-9s and their chocolate chip cookies. Let's not forget that. Yeah. They were the hometown Milwaukee airport. That's right. And then... They went away. It's too bad. Isn't that great? Yeah. You miss Milwaukee? Uh, I, I do, but since I've discovered paradise, I'm not <laughs> sure I'm going to look back. Oh, well, you, unfortunately, you're stuck with me. I look back all the time. Okay, but, that's right. But what's special about this airport? Well, it's special. The experience at the airport is unlike any other because I most of the area is outside. It's relaxed. We do. We're very, very serious about how we run an airport. You'll, you'll, you can tell by just the airport. But it's not your typical. It's relaxing. What airport is relaxing? What airport can Although, sit at a wine bar can, outside? But can I be devil's advocate yeah, for a second? Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the Charlotte Airport. What, what's distinguishing the Charlotte Airport? They're rocking chairs, right? Beautiful rocking yeah. chairs. They're cute. They're lovely. They're relaxing. But the message that those chairs send me is, you're going to be here a while. And to be honest, I don't really want to go to an airport, in my mind, to relax, eat, dine, play golf. I usually, because I'm a frequent flyer, I want to go to an airport to get through the airport, get out of town. So I understand the sensibility here. Don't get me wrong. But for me, I, I want to be a little bit more utilitarian in my approach to the airport. Yeah. You'll make that judgment at the tour. The experience, the <laughs> amount of time from your car to the plane and on the plane and running is a fraction of the Charlottes, the Los Angeles. Well, that's where you make up the difference. Oh, absolutely. So, but, yeah. but we want people not to be nervous. Let's face it, Peter. The experience with security and everything else is really overwhelming to a lot of people. It is. Here, it's palatable. People are nice. We're relaxed. There's music in the background. That's part of getting through. It's like getting an injection and the nurse saying, hey, listen, uh, how's this calendar picture look like over here? So what you're basically saying to me is that uh, there's music to enjoy the pat-down by. 
Uh, that's right. <laughs> so you can have a pat down in a sweaty, hot, overcrowded place like Los Angeles, or you want to do it relaxed with people smiling, say thank you, sir, for flying out of PSP. And the Pinot Grigio is over there. That's exactly okay, right. I just want to make sure difference. The, the, the priorities are all right. Yeah. So now, another another devil's advocate question. I love the idea of the wine bars, and you're out the, you're right there at the tarmac. It's great. But you see other airports where you have an incidence and an increasing incidence of passenger inc- of, of passenger bad behavior, which is alcohol-driven, right? You have a situation where people get tanked before they get on the plane, and the last thing you want is somebody out of their mind at 30,000 feet, right? So short of putting breathalyzers at the gates after the wine bar, are you monitoring the number of alcoholic drinks you're serving? We've got more cameras and police everywhere. We're, we take it very seriously, your behavior at an airport and security, so... Uh, unlike a larger airport, which is so large and spread out, we're watching everything you do and for the right, for the good experience and for the protection of the people. So after the, the second drink, somebody comes over me and says, enjoy your flight. You've been cut off. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a phone on me, which I'll get a call at uh, nine in the evening. And somebody is possibly arrested because of misbehavior, because of alcohol. We don't tolerate it. So. Okay. Yeah. So watch what you do today. So Palm Springs International Airport, two drink maximum. <laughs> yeah, it depends on your size and weight. Oh, you have a scale there, too? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A little story from my past. When I first came out to California as a correspondent for Newsweek back in, I hate to say it, 1971, I remember an editor back there on Madison Avenue in New York City saying to me, what's west of the Hudson? Why? What's There's nothing out there. And then that same editor, not long after I was doing a story in Palm Springs, called me and said, why are you in the desert? What? There's nothing There's nothing lives there. And of course, my next guest is going to disabuse of us all of that notion. Uh, she's with the <laughs> Living Desert Zoo and Gardens, Aaron Scott. A lot of stuff is living out here. There is a lot living in the desert. So let's start with what I got, right? We know there's cacti mm-hmm. and lots of it. Yes. There's uh, palm trees. Yes. There are date palms. Mm-hmm. Uh, sand. There is sand. And more sand. <laughs> but then there's other stuff. There is so much life in the desert. And the deserts around the world, is, and we focus on deserts here and around the world, there is so much life. There's ecosystems that are multi-layered and multi-leveled. And it's our job, and we take a privilege in being able to share that with our guests. And you've been doing that out here for 50 years. 50 years. So we're celebrating our 50th anniversary, 1970. Uh, we were founded as a nature preserve and have grown into a accredited zoo and botanical garden. And, you know, you talk about botanical garden, but it really is botanical gardens. Correct. Yes. We have about 50 botanical gardens. 50? Rep- 50. Wow. Representing 1,400 plant species from around the world. Okay. So give me some surprises and then let's get really, I, I, I can't wait to use this, this symbolism into the weeds. Okay. So give me some examples of some of the surprise species that you have that people would ordinarily not even know about. Well, we right now we focus on the deserts of North America and Africa. And so you're going to see a mountain lion. Uh, you're going to see a jaguar, but you're also going to see a giraffe, as well as an ostrich, a kudu, a cheetah, a variety of big animals. But then you're going to see the small guys, like a chuckwalla lizard who's native to this area. And how small is that lizard? That's a, he, They can be anywhere from about six inches to ten inches, depending on That's the small. Age. That's yes. small. And they move fast. They move very fast. And they have a really unique adaptation. So they live in the mountains here in the Coachella Valley. And as their defense mechanism, they'll bury themselves into a rock crevice if they feel threatened. And they'll blow themselves up with air. 
and the predator can't come in and grab it. Like the blowfish. Similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they puff up. They puff up. Unbelievable. You you mentioned jaguar. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of them around. There's not. Um, You know, we have a number of endangered species that we help protect, and the jaguar is one of those species. Um, Their native ranges used to be up into the southern United States in those desert mountains, and it's much more limited now due to a variety of factors. Um, So jaguar is one of those species that um, you don't think about desert, but they are their native historic native range. And then there's the Mexican wolf. And then there's the Mexican wolf. So in the early 70s, you know, wolves were persecuted across the country and And in many cases the they still are. And many cases they still are. Um, I mean, up in Wyoming and Montana, I mean, it's still a problem. Yes. Uh, they're viewed as predators that you don't want to be around. But that's, we're, we're trying to change that. Um, in 1970, a group of conservationists, including the Living Desert, got together and tried to save the Mexican wolf. And we're doing just that, you know, 50 years later. Exactly. And then, you know, we have an animal that I think is completely misunderstood, especially in Southern California, because every once in a while it ends up in residential neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. and that's the mountain lion. Mm -hmm. Yes. So mountain lions are, this is their home. We're living in their home. And they're really important top predators in ecosystems. And it's really important to view them as we need to coexist. And this is their land as much as it is ours. And you have to explain that to people. Yes. Look, when it gets into territory, rights, that's not always an easy explanation. No, it's not. It is not. But educating people that the wildlife isn't the enemy. It's how can we learn to coexist? And through various things like community-based conservation, we're teaching communities to coexist and learning what's important to them so that we can be successful in conservation. I mean, you have a pretty robust school program. I know that. We do. Yeah. We welcome you know 40,000 school field trippers a year um, and about 100,000 school-aged children visit a year. However, for those people listening to the show who never leave the resort once you visit it, <laughs> this is an opportunity to take a day trip or at least a few hours and come see you guys. Yes. it's It takes a couple of hours to come see see the zoo and botanical gardens but it's a day well spent out in nature where you can connect and take in the beautiful views and wildlife and even though you were started as a nature preserve Mm -hmm. you got hiking trails we do we're really unique in that we have about a thousand acres as nature preserve and there's nature trails and hiking trails that go up eisenhower mountain so you can actually spend the day see everything and actually get exercise at the same time exactly (laughs) how long will that take you to do the hike takes a, a couple hours. Um, there's different levels. There's a, a short one mile and then a five mile loop. And obviously you're open all the time. We are open 364 days a year. Uh-oh, watch out for Christmas. Yep. I got it. Aaron <laughs> Scott from the Living Desert Zoo and Gardens. Thanks so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. My next guest is a total local, knows everything there is to know about this region, not to mention just events going on, but actually just cool things that may not even be in the guidebook. Ron Wilson, how are you? Good, how are you? Ron, you know, when you think about how you came to move here, your your dad retired here and then you came out. When you came out here, it was a completely different place. 1984, I came out for the Olympics and yes, nothing was here. It was the middle of July and uh, it was quiet, quiet, quiet and hot. Hot, hot, hot. hot. You you fried. Yes. But you stayed. I stayed, yes. It's still once you are here and you see the mountains and you experience the desert, 
uh, it's a wonderful place to live, but the desert really didn't start blooming again uh, until the 90s. Uh, there had just been a lot through the 70s and 80s. It had become a very uh, kind of forgotten town. And yet you immersed yourself here, you didn't leave, right. and you watched it grow. Yes, amazingly. So many things now. And of course, you know, when I first came down here, <clears throat> which is 1971, I was a correspondent for Newsweek then, you know, you already had Bob Hope here, you had, you know, Walter Annenberg here, you had Frank Sinatra here, exactly. right? And, uh, and I know uh, there's such, there are so great stories, so many great stories about them because you had every president showing up, right. presidents playing golf with Bob Hope. Bob Hope. You had Jerry Ford, of course, the Betty Ford Center. Everything started happening, right? And every world leader came here, from Margaret Thatcher to everyone else, to be at the Annenbergs and for Frank and Barbara to be married at the Annenbergs estate. And it was just a big, Gerald Ford was here, even Spiro Agnew well, retired N here. Nixon, Nixon stayed at the Annenberg estate. Exactly, many times. And the whole story about the Annenberg estate, which I love, I, I, I talked about it earlier in the show, but it bears repeating, is when he first wanted to play golf, they didn't want to let him play golf with at the, the country club, so he bought his own estate, <laughs> created his own golf course, and then took their water. Exactly, yes. Exactly. Right? Is that, that's, that's a true story. That's a true story. The same way that really the racquet club was built because uh, Charlie Farrell and William Powell kept taking over the courts for the hotel where Desert Hospital is now, so they decided to buy some vacant land, and next thing they know, they built the racquet club, and that's where Marilyn Monroe was discovered, just because they couldn't get enough time to play tennis. And I had a chance to, to meet Farrell. I mean, amazing. Yeah. I mean, amazing. the stories that he was telling. Also, <clears throat> I noticed that you were involved in the Frank Sinatra estate. Well, yes, that's one of the properties I managed. The original estate, the 1947 Twin Palms estate in uh, Palm Springs that he lived in from 47 to 57. And, you know, the story told about that house is, of course, Frank Sinatra was uh, very close at one point with the Kennedys. In fact, he produced their inauguration. And, and then there was a falling out. Yes. And the falling out happened over, over essentially a supposed trip that Kennedy was supposed to make to stay with Frank at his estate in, in the desert. Correct. And then J. Edgar Hoover lobbied RFK, who was then the attorney general, who then said to Jack, it can't happen because of supposed ties with the mob. <laughs> and Sinatra had gone to great lengths. Yes, to read the helipad. He put the helipad in, he did all that stuff, and it never happened. No, and then he went out and jackhammered up the helipad, and it's now a flower bed. <laughs> That's how angry he was, <laughs> yes. right? The original house uh, actually has a, a wonderful story with he and Lana Turner and uh, Ava Gardner when he was married to her that he came home at one point and discovered Ava and Lana in the pool with another gentleman and they, they weren't just doing the dog paddle apparently. They were a little more friendly <laughs> than perhaps they should have been. And so Frank got in a raucous argument with Ava and threw a bottle at her and missed and hit the bathroom sink and cracked it. And of course the crack is still there. It's never been. And the bottle he threw was a Jack Daniels bottle. Well, it should be. Everyone says champagne bottle. I, but I always say, yeah, and of course people say Ava threw it at him now. It's much more, a little more me too, but I believe Frank threw it at No, 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 you know what? Let's, let's, let's be real here. Exactly. He, he threw the bottle. Right. There's always a bottle of Jack Daniels sitting in that house. Still today. Still to this day. Yeah. And what is it used for now? Right now it's owned uh, by, a, by a private couple and they use it for private events and uh, vacation rentals. It's rented out a lot for charity events and corporate events. Wow. And have you changed anything in there? It's a beautiful estate, uh, Easter at Williams Modernist Design. It was really the first kickoff in 47 of that whole period that's so famous here with Modernism Week and everything in Palm Springs, really based on like Richard Neutra and Frank Lloyd Wright design. So it's a beautiful, open, big 
area house, but it's only 3,700 square feet. It's not a big house. Not a big house. So when he actually built that, he built it on that land. There was nothing around him, and that was as far out as you could go on private land. So he got it right to the point that they couldn't go any farther. And what's the address? Uh, well, it's on the National Register of Historic Places, so I can tell you that. It's 1145 Via Calusa. Right, but there is a Frank Sinatra Drive. Yes, there is a Frank Sinatra Drive, but the actual property is on Via Calusa. But there's a Frank Sinatra Drive, there's a Bob Hope Drive. Correct, yes. Right, Bing Crosby? No, 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 no Bing Crosby. We've got uh, Kirk Douglas, we've got Ginger Rogers, we have Gerald Ford, <laughs> Dinah Shore, all the rest, but no. Elizabeth Taylor? No, Elizabeth Taylor, although she had a house here in Palm Springs. Well, Dinah Shore was legendary here. Yes, yes. Because of golf. And now, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio owns her incredible modernist home that was designed in uh, Las Palmas in Palm Springs, and that's also used as an event and vacation rental, but that's a truly spectacular 7,000 almost square foot house on a beautiful lot. But he owns it. He owns it, yes. Leonardo DiCaprio owns it now. Cool. Yeah. So for people listening this, to this program who've never been here and who are never probably going to get to Frank's house, what's the biggest surprise for them when they show up? Honestly, I think it's to realize how close the mountains are here and how you really you can be in nature here very, very quickly. You, the hiking trails are beautiful. The Indian canyons are beautiful. So a lot of people just come for the golf, the tennis, the events, the weather. But really, as soon as you step out of the the boundaries of these cities. You're in some beautiful desert landscape and Joshua Tree is only a 20 minute ride from here. So we really have some spectacular, just natural beauty that people don't necessarily always associate with the desert, but I think it's you know, truly an unusual setting to have a city like this just so placed right at the base of the mountains like this. We're talking to Ron Willison, who's, uh, who's my personal now historian here <laughs> <laughs> in the valley. Speaking of, of that, there's so many festivals now. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Right? Coachella. Right, the music festival. You've got Palm Springs Film Festival. Yeah. When they started the Palm Springs Film Festival, I started laughing, saying, that's never going to catch on. It mm-hmm. did. Yes, and it's amazing. You know, I was one of the original volunteers there, and then I worked for it for 10 years and did the hospitality and special events. But Sonny Bono really is what brought back, to me, really the whole valley. Him starting that festival and giving its natural attention and killing off what was a spring break for college kids, it had really turned downtown Palm Springs into one long T-shirt shop. And, even and then his, still, his, his widow, Mary, right. she continued. Exactly. And stayed as a congresswoman for many years. And we're both wonderful here to everyone in the Valley, with the, particularly sponsoring charities and helping the film festival to grow and get talent and bring people in and supported so many other charities to show up for every uh, gala they could help. They were really, truly a unique company. And, and okay, Ron, the, the, I want the, the full disclosure here. How many galas are we talking about? Oh, Lord, there's more galas than you can count out here. Uh, there's actually something uh, of a comparison to some other cities, but something like 952 galas per year here for various charities. That's more, that's the three a night. Yeah, exactly. Now you don't necessarily go to them all, and a lot of them well, are you all physically the can't. Day. Yes, of course. And a lot of them are on the same day in season, because our season here is Thanksgiving to you know Easter. That's the traditional, but of course it extends all through the year now. But so many things, so many charities. I mean, we're one of the top fundraising uh, places in the country. People don't realize we're right up there with major capital, you know, cities like Houston and Dallas for just the amount of money that's raised for national and local charities. So if I were going to do a gala, I would do it in July. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but see, then you wouldn't have all the people who buy the tables here because they're here in March. So that's why all the galas. Yeah, but at least I'd be able March. to get people. I have space. Yes, you would have space, but you wouldn't make any money. And galas are all supposedly about making money. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. 
special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.